scriptures. Let's pray together as we begin our study. Lord, speak to us now by your spirit as we open your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and you've promised to guide us by your spirit and we ask that you would teach us your way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So you know that what we're doing here at Village Church, we're studying the first chapters of the book of beginnings, Genesis, and we're looking for firsts, foundational truths about God, foundational truths about walking with God, powerful truths for living for God. Last week, actually two weeks ago, Pastor Dan, I'm grateful for his leadership this last week when he spoke, Uh, but two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 4 and the first human death on earth. And then before that, we looked at Genesis 3, the fall, and then Genesis 2, the gift of the Sabbath, the gift of manhood, the biblical gift of marriage. We looked at the gift of womanhood, and we've looked at the, our Creator God. And this Sabbath, we find ourselves in the chapters, uh, probably some of the most, the, the most well-known story in Scripture, the flood. The imagery of Noah building the huge ark, the picture of animals coming in two by two into the ark, uh, and this worldwide deluge that covers even up to the highest peaks of planet Earth and then retreating, and then God's rainbow spread across the sky saying that this will never happen again is a most memorable story. Probably one of the most well-known in Scripture. What is often minimized, however, or even left unsaid, is the unimaginable destruction. Noah and his family are saved from it. Animals loaded in the ark are safe, but everything, everyone else, is destroyed. It wouldn't be wrong to say that we've watered down the account of the flood. Uh, A little pun intended there. I'm guilty of it. You probably are too. When my kids were small, I loved to tell the story. The colorful parade of animals that entered the ark. The magnificence of this floating zoo. The happy songs we sang together and recounting the menagerie of God's creation safely protected in this floating ark. I'm doing the same with my grandkids too and enjoying every moment of it. And I'm going to keep doing it as long as my kids keep giving me grandkids. And then maybe they'll be great grandkids and who knows how long, I don't know how long I'll last or how this world lasts, but I'll be doing it. I look to the story of the flood and what it was about. And you know, it's not just about animals or about Noah. It's not just about an ark. The story of the flood is a story about God. What picture about God emerges from the flood narrative? For many people, the idea of the flood, the the picture of God, the God of the Bible, a good God, a loving God, a merciful God, that clashes in their mind with the story, 
the story of violence, the story of judgment, the story of worldwide death. How could a God who is good send a flood to drown everything on earth, except one family and a bunch of animals that are on an ark? How could that happen? Honestly, we have to say, it's not an easy read. The picture is not tame. And without a good answer, these questions keep us awake at night. They rattle our conscience and they, they make believing seem less believable. That's why our study today is crucial, I think. Our focus on what the Bible actually says about this, this famous story will tell us something different than maybe we might have thought. It'll tell us that above all, God is a loving God. Above all, God is a righteous God. God is a gracious God. He cares more deeply about us than we can imagine. He's fair, he's just, he's good. And his ultimate goal is to save us and restore us. All that. But some of you, some of you, Maybe having a hard time with this, even though we've said that, because there are so many unbelievables about this story. Just think of them. A local flood? Yeah, we can imagine that. We've had one here in 2020. Yeah, that's easy. But how about a global flood? A flood covering everything, even the highest things. That's, that's a lot. The oceans would have to triple in volume and then sink back to normal within a year. That's, that's big stuff. And fitting eight people and feeding and cleaning and thousands of species of every amphibian, every reptile, every bird, every mammal. You, you add that up and the logistics seem impossible. And then, and then, where are you going to get a polar bear Where are you going to get a penguin? Where are you going to get a koala in Iraq? I mean, the the possibilities there. The impossibilities of this flood story are immense. And so for some people, that's a great challenge. But, But I have to say that so are the challenges of bringing sight to a man born blind. So are the challenges of bringing back to life a man dead four days. So are the challenges of the Creator God being born of a virgin. The Creator God dying for our sins. The Creator God ascending to heaven and assuming His rightful position. All that is scientifically impossible. But reality isn't limited to science. Bill Nye may say, Science rules, <laughs> but there's someone bigger than science. Someone bigger than Bill Nye. Besides, Jesus himself affirmed the historicity of the flood story and encourages us to study it, to learn lessons from it, and then use those lessons to prepare for the days that we're living in, the last days of earth's history. Here's what he said in Matthew 24, verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. There Jesus says it. 
And so with that encouragement, we're going to dive in. And the account of the flood is found in three chapters, four chapters, Genesis 6 through 9. But really the story begins much earlier. The flood is a part of a, a bigger story, the bigger story of beginnings that we've been studying in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. And so we go back to, to think of it. Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Sorry, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't even know what I said there. but uh, And after that, a downward spiral begins. In that sin, in that sin of Adam and Eve, and then soon after that, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his, his brother. And there we begin to see the, the enmity that God said would happen and exist between God and his people and good and Satan and evil in the world. There we begin to see it. Cain moved further along and further away from God into absolute rebellion. He became the head of a boldly rebellious people and as it says in the book of Patriarchs and Prophets, a group of abandoned sinners. Not abandoned by God, but people who had abandoned themselves into a sinful lifestyle. Enticed by Satan, the first rebel, Cain, his example is spread to others. One of Cain's descendants, Lamech, became a man renowned for violence, renowned for evil. And this is the story that follows after Cain and and Abel's death in Genesis chapter 4. It it reveals how quickly the earth degraded and how quickly sin destroyed earth. Here's how one Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, described it. He said, while Eve had, had been talked into her sin, Cain will not even have God talk him out of it, nor will he confess to it nor yet accept his punishment. Cain can't be talked out of it. Lamech, Cain's grandson, not only can't be talked out of it, but revels in sin. Cain nursed a grudge against his brother. Lamech chases a grudge. He chases trouble. He provokes hatred. He incites animosity. He boasts about his savage, lopsided killing of a boy for just a minor issue. He brags to his wife in a song about it, in the the first song in Scripture. Genesis 4.23 says, Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. Notice, he says, wives. (laughs) Lamech has a total regard for God's guardrail his commands not only is he doing evil against others he's doing evil in his his family multiplying wives sin and evil are intensifying so what we see happening here really in just the first chapters of the book of genesis is a dismantling of goodness a dismantling of justice a dismantling of godliness humankind 
becomes divided, divided into two groups. Those who honor God, those are the descendants of, of Seth, and those who abandon morality, they're the descendants of, of Cain. And it wasn't because one family is blessed and one isn't. It wasn't because God had, some, had given one group more natural goodness and one another more inclination to evil. Not at all. Every child, every grandchild, every great-grandchild of Adam and Eve after the fall inherited the same sinful nature of their parents. But some, some, by faith, took hold of hope, took hold of their Redeemer, and followed God's ways, God's ways of truth and love. And for a time, the world was populated with these two classes, two separate classes, the descendants of Seth, who were faithful to God, and the descendants of Cain, who withdrew from God. But over time, little by little, the two mingled. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. So what we see here is a mingling, an enticement, a luring that eventually led to a corruption and a degradation until the entire planet is totally corrupted. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. Evil all the time. And in the, in the beginning, God made everything in his image. He made mankind, humankind, in his image. And he said that everything he made was good, not just good. It was very good. It was a perfect world. But it too soon spiraled out of control into absolute violence and incessant corruption. Humankind, in every thought, in every action, was only evil continually. Oppression became institutionalized. Violence bred violence. Corruption bred corruption. Racism bred racism. Lies bred lies. Sexual perversion, sexual perversion. Doesn't it seem like we're about there today? I mean, civility today seems like it's a thing of the past. Values are tanking. Drug and alcohol abuse are decimating. Poverty, crime, racism, individualism. But it was worse then. It was only evil continually. Sin had reached, according to Scripture, it had reached a critical mass. It permeated every corner of civilization. You think it's bad today? Perversion. Injustice. Greed. Oppression. Violence. Pride. Envy. Gluttony. Lust. Corruption to the point that God had to respond. He had to. To wait any longer would have completely decimated the human race. The situation was nearly beyond the point of return and beyond the hope 
of God's purposes. And so, as it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, the Lord regretted. He, had re- he regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I'll wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I've made them. I regret that I've made them. God isn't angry. Some people look at God as being angry, so he sent the flood. He wasn't angry, but he was deeply sorrowful. Not that he had created the world, not that he had created us, or he never would have created us in the first place. And also, he never would have given a second start to Noah, but he doesn't feel like we're a mistake. He doesn't feel like he's made a mistake because God doesn't make mistakes. And he's not wishing that he'd done differently because that would imply that what he had done wasn't as good as he should have done, that there's a better way. But God is sorry. And this is the first point that the flood, the story tells us. He's sorry that it's come to this. He's sorry that he has to act. He's sorry, but he has the responsibility to act. And so he acts in love as a caring God for a creation that has gone amok. He cannot simply let sin run its course. Responsibility implies response. And so God does. Makes me think of the era in the Kinney family when my kids were young and um, I had the responsibility on occasion to, well, discipline or to comfort. And when they were sick, when they were hurting, when they were challenged with some problem or difficulty, I, I grieved. I grieved for my children. I grieved when they were hurting. I grieved when their actions were hurtful to others or their characters were hurtful to themselves. You know, but even during those times, those frustrating times, those challenging times for my children, I was never once sorry that they were my children. I never once, never ever was sorry that they were part of the family. I was grieved because they were my family. I was grieved because their pain was my pain. That's the grief of God. God was grieved because his creation, his own, had come to such a complete tragedy. They had gone completely awry and necessitated a divine intervention. That's why God grieved. The just and righteous creator God, the sovereign over the universe, the creator of the universe, had to step in before creation imploded. Maybe a story, a dramatic story from our own history is instructive. In mid-July 1945, President Harry S. Truman was notified of the successful test of the atomic bomb. He called it the most terrible bomb in human history. It was, it is. And as the president, it was Truman's decision 
if this weapon would be used with the goal of ending the war with Japan. He said, it's an awful responsibility that has come to us, to him. The morning of August 6, 1945, the Enola Gay bomber dropped the world's first atomic bomb. And one week later, on August 14, 1945, the second atomic bomb was dropped. And the Japanese surrendered. And the deadliest conflict in human history was over. President Truman never publicly said, but I'm sure he thought he was sorry that he had ordered these bombs to be dropped. Truman certainly regretted the outcome. He knew that the devastation would be catastrophic. That's even mild. Catastrophic. But that does not mean that he wished he wouldn't have done it. He chose to do it because something even more consequential had to happen. The war had to end. I think it's the same sort of way that God is grieved over the sin in the world and the suffering that has consumed his creation. God takes no pleasure in what he has to do. His heart is broken. He's essentially undone. You read those words. He's undone by the pain of seeing his creation, his his special creation that was meant to flourish, turn into what one theologian called a theater of violence and disaster. His act, the worldwide flood and destruction of all living things to save Noah and his family was a drastic measure to save, not to destroy. He was saving. The world was reeling toward absolute destruction. So rather than letting sin destroy the entire earth and everything in it, God was actually sparing the world from annihilation. The flood is not a picture of a mean, capricious, uncaring God. The flood is the narrative of God's desperate plan to save the world. Back for a moment to my days as a young father. And this bringing out our second point, and that being God being a God of just mercy shown by this flood. Occasionally, occasionally, not very often, only a few times, but I did. I spanked my children. Now, some of you may disagree with that way, and the scenario, I must admit, always made me a bit uncomfortable. It did. And maybe you may question the logic, too, hitting someone to teach them not to misbehave. It just is kind of strange. But I did it. I did it on occasion because I was responsible for my children's behavior. I was as their father. And I I disciplined them in order to effectively direct them, in order to shape them, not to hurt them. That's why I did it. I wanted them to know 
the seriousness of the matter. And so I did. And I think it's the same sort of thing in a certain sense as God unleashing the flood chaos on planet Earth in response to the chaos on his planet. The crucial issue is responsibility. It was God's responsibility. It was, and his motive was to move into the charge of that was his as creator of the world for the pre-flood world. It was total, uncontrolled violence, abuse, and oppression. And in contrast to that, God unleashes under his control the flood. Uncontrolled chaos and controlled chaos. The flood is totally under his control. The flood accomplishes his will. This is the hard part of, really, for me. This is a hard part about God's character for me to negotiate. I look at the flood. I look at other hard things that the Bible t- tells about. Like, for example, the 10th plague in Egypt when all the firstborn children were killed. I look at the slaughter of all the cultures when God's people moved into Palestine. I look at other difficult things, and they're challenging for me. But talking now more personally, more individually, just like Frankie talked about this morning in his testimony, we can all talk about, we can all think of personal struggles that we've had circumstances of our own making, chaos that is unleashed in our lives because of our choices. That has happened for me. It's happened for you, I'm sure. A bad choice. Maybe a series of bad choices. Maybe words that should never have been been spoken. And the chaos comes. The chaos comes. It's so easy to blame God in those moments. It's so easy to, to point the finger But we also have to say that those hard times have an impact on us that oftentimes, if we will allow it, help us to face our personal issues and to repent of those things that have brought on those challenges and help us to turn around. That's what happens. That's what happened. You can see many stories like this in the Bible. For example, just a short one. You can turn to it if you want to sometime and read Second Chronicles 33. It's the story of King Manasseh, one of the longest reigning kings in Israel. And the first part of his reign was disaster. He was one of the worst, most evil kings in the history of, of God's kingdom. Finally, the Assyrians attacked and conquered Jerusalem and took Manasseh in prisoner and led him back to Babylon with a hook in his nose. Manasseh had some time to think. He had some time to to consider. And Manasseh repented. He humbled himself before God. He pled for God's forgiveness. And the rest of the story is one of the greatest stories of of a godly king ruling over God's people in the Bible. The Bible has many other stories just like that, where chaos and challenge bring bring a new beginning. 
But maybe one other story, a story from recent history here for us in the United States, and that's the story of Chuck Colson. Maybe some of you recognize that name. Chuck Colson, his story, the story of his life, maybe is one of the best known and most outstanding examples of how unleashed chaos in someone's life brings about a change in the life, a change for a new beginning. Chuck Colson, you remember him. He was not raised in a religious home, but he was raised in a family of character and integrity. But his drive and his ambition brought him quickly to success in his career in law and politics. But before he was 40 years old, he had an influential position in the Nixon White House. But Chuck Colson really had no inner moral compass. And soon his commitment to loyalty eclipsed his commitment to integrity. He relished his position as Nixon's hatchet man, and he did whatever needed to be done to move the president's agenda, even if it was wrong, especially if it was wrong. He was ruthless. He was a, the end justifies the means political operator. That was Chuck Colson. He wrote in a memo once, I would walk over my, grandmother, my grandmother's grave for Richard Nixon. And he did. When Watergate scandal broke and chaos brought Colson to his knees and he went to prison, during seven months there, Colson surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Surrendered his life. And the Holy Spirit began a work of transformation that is historic. You know it. You remember the story. He began what's called the prison fellowship ministry and became a leading spokesman in the Christian world. And his life is is an example, I believe, of what can happen when God is invited to clean up the chaos that sin has brought in our lives. Just like Frankie's story. What God did in your life, Frankie. What God did in my life. So the story of the flood is a story of mercy. It's a story of judgment. But that judgment brings an end to destructive sin, ever-increasing evil. But mercy and renewal and restoration and new beginning for our faithful followers, for Noah and his family and the world. Which brings us to our last and final, I think, point, instruction about this, this flood. And that is that God saves and God restores. That's what the flood is all about. The flood story is, is not just about guilt and punishment. It's not just about a world being destroyed. It's a story of God's saving grace. God's saving grace. God is able to bring restoration. He's able to bring new life where sin has brought only destruction and desolation. The Bible identifies Noah as a righteous man. 
It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse number 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among all the peoples of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. But blameless does not imply perfection. Noah was a blameless man, but blameless in God's sight through the redemption and renewal of Jesus Christ that he can offer. He wasn't sinless any more than you you or I aren't sinless. But it does mean that he was complete. That's what that word means. Blameless means complete. He was not a hypocritical in his tolerance of compromise. He didn't tolerate those things. He didn't tolerate half-truths. He was entire in his commitment to God. That's what it means. That's what blameless means. He walked with God. He was a faithful friend of God, a companion of God. You can be that. I can be that. God invites us to be that today. The Bible doesn't imply that Noah was spared because he deserved to be. He didn't deserve it. I don't don't deserve it either. And nor did he earn it. He and his family were simply the ones who were still listening to God, who were still in relationship with God. And in the end, we're not supposed to be impressed with Noah. We're supposed to be impressed with God and what God does, what God can do, what he wants to do. God is the one who spares Noah. God is the one who saves. And the first thing that Noah does when he gets off that ark is worship God. Genesis 8 verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. It was a petition. Burnt offering is a petition for forgiveness. It's an offering for of praise and thanksgiving. That's what a burnt offering was. In other words, Noah celebrates God's saving grace. The flood story is a savage operation. Noah and his family are saved, though. Human salvation is salvaged. And this is the heart what God is all about. God salvages Noah and his family. God salvages a man named Saul who was bent on destroying his church and filled with skeptic zeal and self-centered pride and, and makes him into Paul, one of the greatest missionaries that has ever lived. God salvages a boastful, arrogant, conniving, political maneuverer and makes Colson into a bold, dedicated, devoted advocate for God's kingdom. God salvages the Frankies of this world. God salvages the Jeffs of this world. God salvages each and every one of us, and he nurtures you and me. He saves us and transforms our lives from sinful rubble into heaven-honoring life. That's what God wants to do for you and for me. God is in the business of recreating, not destroying. And every time you see a rainbow stretch across the sky, God is saying, I'm here.
I'm with you. Not to destroy you, but to restore you. God is saying he wants to save. He wants to redeem. He wants to heal. He wants to save us from our sin and all the condemnation it brings. And he wants to salvage you and me for a ministry, for service, for him, for others, for his glory. Would you say yes to him this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven. The story of the flood is a, is a hard one. It's so difficult to see the pain and the chaos of that moment. But it was because it was the only way. The only way to save. The only way, way to heal. The only way to bring back from utter destruction this world that you had made. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for, for your love, for your goodness and your grace then and now for us. We've made chaos of our own in our lives by our own mistakes, by our own misdeeds, by our own words. But you save us from that destruction too through Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'll use your spirit living within us, your word instructing us and teaching us, your empowerment to bring out of our lives something for your glory and honor. And may we be used by you to bring others to you before you return is our prayer. So send us now as your missionaries into our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.